The seven deadly sins, lust, wrath, envy, greed, sloth, gluttony, and pride. Historically, these sins have claimed to be the worst humanity has to offer. Each sin attributes to a major flaw in a person's disposition. Through each of these seven deadly sins is an opportunity, an opportunity for a person to commit atrocious acts, acts such as murder. An innocent victim killed from road rage, a man who had such a hunger that traditional food simply wouldn't do, and a prideful killer who did the unthinkable in the courtroom. All this and more on this special episode of Seriously Strange. In our world, much has been explained, but that's only what's on the surface. Within the shadows of our knowledge exists another world, a darker world, one that is home to the unbelievable, the unthinkable, the unexplainable. It's here where we feed our darkest curiosities. Anything is possible in this world, a world so seriously strange. A killer who claimed the life of her patients without mercy, all for a sexual thrill. Jane Topan was born in 1857 in Massachusetts to a mother who died from tuberculosis and a father who was known very well in the community for being absolutely insane. At nearly 30 years old, Jane began training to become a nurse at Cambridge Hospital. Instead, she treated her patients like guinea pigs with experiments, often overdosing patients simply to see what the effects would be. She would, at times, get into the beds with her victims and hold them as they drifted away from the medication. Hold Holding her victims while they died by her hand brought on intense orgasms. Jane knew that she wanted to replicate that sexual thrill any chance she got. Jane didn't only go undetected in her murderous endeavors, she was also given a better job at Massachusetts General Hospital. But eventually, administration caught on to the high number of deaths in her care, and she was dismissed the following year. So Jane eventually took on a career as a private nurse. She moved in with an elderly man named Alden Davis, who was a widower because Jane had actually killed his wife sometime earlier. She ended up murdering him as well, and two of his daughters. Jane's sexual desire for death raged on. The surviving members of Alden Davis's family, being suspicious, ordered a toxicology exam which exposed Jane's poisoning methods. Jane was caught soon after and charged with the murders. In 1902, Jane confessed to murdering 31 people, all for a sexual thrill. She was committed to Taunton Insane Hospital until she died in 1938. <laughs> Wrath is excellent at clouding judgment and inspiring deadly decisions. Alan Garcia was a father engaging in a normal fatherly routine. He drove his truck to his children's school in October of 2015 in Albuquerque, New Mexico to pick up his seven-year-old son Isaac and his four-year-old daughter Lily. Alan wanted to drop by the grocery store before heading home and just as he was about to get off the highway, a car quickly cut across two lanes and blocked him. Alan, angered by this, cursed at 32-year-old Tony Torres, the man who had suddenly cut him off. 
Tony didn't seem at all concerned that he had just put Alan and his children's lives at risk, but he was still furious over Alan's objections. Tony pulled up alongside Alan's window and shouted an insult. So much rage had overtaken him, even though it was he who made the foolish move to cut Alan off. And Tony withdrew a gun. Alan immediately sped up to get away while Tony opened fire on the truck. Alan did anything he could to get away, but Tony fired off four shots at the truck before he raced off and disappeared. During the chaos, Alan heard his son utter something he'll never forget. Isaac said, she's bleeding. Now with the threat gone, Alan turned his attention to his children. To his absolute horror, he saw four-year-old Lily with blood in her hair. A bullet had ripped through the side of the truck and lodged right into the little girl's head. Two nurses happened to be driving by and rushed to assist in helping the girl, but there was no hope. Lily died of her wounds and left the entire Garcia family shattered because of Tony's viciously uncontained rage. Tony Torres was arrested and hit with a number of charges from first-degree murder to child abuse, and it is unlikely that he will ever be free again. Envy can be a harmless, natural desire to have something that someone else possesses, but for some, if they can't have it, nobody can. Christine Paiolillo was a girl born into a family soon to fall apart. Her father died in a work-related accident and her mother began abusing drugs. To make matters worse for Christine, in just kindergarten, she was diagnosed with alopecia, which resulted in noticeable hair loss. Because of this condition, Christine wore wigs and struggled with self-esteem over her appearance. Christine eventually reunited with her mother, who had remarried, and moved to Clear Lake City, Texas, and enrolled in Clear Lake High School. She was soon befriended by two very popular girls named Rachel and Tiffany. Her two new friends gave her a makeover to boost her self-confidence. And in 2003, Christine was voted Miss Irresistible by the entire student body and even got herself a boyfriend. Things seemed to be going better than ever, but there was an unseen darkness inside of Christine. She was known to be very jealous, but no one really knew just how much. Despite her good fortune, she had a burning envy for the life she couldn't have. It was no secret that Christine's new boyfriend, Christopher, was a less-than-positive influence on her, often isolating her and getting her into drug use. On July 18, 2003, Christine and Christopher drove to Tiffany's house. Tiffany, along with Rachel and two others, were inside. It was known by Christine and Christopher that drugs were kept in the house, and they wanted to take them. It's not exactly known what happened in the house that day, but the bodies didn't lie. Christine and Christopher killed all four people inside of the house. But Christine didn't just kill her friends and make a getaway. No, her envious nature took control. Tiffany and Rachel were good to Christine. They didn't ridicule her as so many would have. They helped her, but Christine wanted more. As if they were her sworn enemies, Christine brutally murdered the two she called friends. Aside from shooting, she grabbed her revolver by its barrel and bashed in Rachel's head over and over with the butt of the gun. Christine's raging envy wasn't through. She stood over the bloody mess and shot Rachel's corpse in the crotch as a final envious insult. The crime that day would go unsolved for three years. Christine and Christopher ended up ending their relationship and walked their own separate paths of self-destruction. Christine was eventually tracked down and arrested. Christopher knew the police were looking for him and committed suicide by overdose in a heavily wooded area. Christine, being a juvenile at the time, avoided the death penalty and will be eligible for parole in 2046.
Having a lot of money can be a curse disguised as a blessing. This could apply most to those who win the lottery. In November of 2006, Abraham Shakespeare, a hardworking man from Florida, ended up winning $30 million in 2006 when he won the lottery after giving his friend Michael money to buy him a couple of tickets. After taxes, Abraham took home $17 million. Greed had reared its ugly head almost immediately. Michael wanted a large share for running into the store for him and even tried to sue Abraham, but the court ruled in Abraham's favor. But this event was a sign of things to come. Abraham quickly moved to a gated community, and aside from the nice house, Abraham barely spent his money on expensive things at all. But Abraham's path continued to lead towards shady territory. Friends incessantly bothered Abraham for money, and he gave much of it away, but began to regret his wealth. Having lost many friends, he eventually found comfort in a woman named Dee Dee Moore, who met with Abraham and expressed an interest in writing a book about him. Dee Dee seemed nice enough and gained Abraham's trust. She started a business with him and gave herself control of its funds. With this money, she lived extravagantly. Aside from this, Abraham's house and most of his property was transferred over to Dee Dee Moore's own company. Having taken exorbitant amounts of money from Abraham's fortune, Dee Dee knew that Abraham would eventually become a problem. In April of 2009, not even three years after his win, Abraham disappeared. Dee Dee continued to live in his house and used his cell phone, pretending to be him, to hold off suspicion. To tie up the loose end that was Abraham, Dee Dee shot him to death and buried his body beneath a concrete slab. She attempted to tarnish his reputation and even paid one of his friends to take the blame for the disappearance. Eventually, undercover police were able to discover the grisly truth. Dee Dee took advantage of a generous man who would give anything to his friends at the drop of a hat. She now lives in squalor behind bars where she will remain for the rest of her life. Some people will do just about anything to get out of work. Henry Chow Hoi Lung was a 31-year-old man from Hong Kong and was professionally lazy. He enjoyed a lavish lifestyle provided by his elderly parents. They provided Henry with everything he could possibly ask for, but Henry began to develop a dangerous sense of entitlement and believed that he didn't have to earn what he received and that it should just be given to him. But in 2013, after 31 years of supporting him, his parents had had enough. They wanted Henry to go out and support himself and cut off his flow of money. Henry was more than just a little upset, so he began to plot. Instead of getting a job and supporting himself financially, he teamed up with a friend and took three months to make a few final purchases with the money he had. A couple of refrigerators, sets of knives, microwaves, and a rice cooker. He explained to his friend what he planned on doing, and his friend agreed to help with the aftermath for fear Henry would murder his mother if he refused. Henry's parents knew that he was upset over the event, so when Henry invited his parents over for lunch at his flat one day, they thought he had put the matter behind him. His parents arrived happily, and soon after, Henry brutally stabbed them, slashed their throats, and killed them both right in his living room. Once dead, his friend cut up their bodies, cooked the meat, packaged it, and concealed it in the refrigerators, hoping to disguise it as pork. Eventually, police became suspicious once the parents had been reported missing, and upon investigation, discovered the remains, including the heads of both Henry's parents, in the refrigerators. Henry was found guilty of the murders and now continues to be lazy for the rest of his life behind bars.
Moderation is key to a healthy life. Nikolai Zhumagaliev was born in 1952 in the Soviet Union into a society that considered women as second-class citizens. His upbringing instilled a hatred for women and a dysfunctional life. Nikolai often failed at integrating into society, especially when holding down jobs. But this didn't matter very much in the long run. Nikolai was never destined for a normal life. A good indicator of this was when Nikolai decided to replace his teeth with white metal implants, which earned him the title of Metal Fang. Once Nikolai reached his mid-twenties, he committed his first murder. Nikolai found a woman in a quiet area walking by herself. He swiftly ran up and grabbed her, dragged her off the road, slit her throat, and began drinking her blood right there. He then used his knife to fillet her flesh, rolled up pieces of fresh meat, and packed them away in his backpack. Nikolai now had a taste for murder and human. The remainder of Nikolai's free life would be a constant search for his next meal. This was a man who loved eating people. He'd go on to commit nearly 10 more murders, almost all of which he ate. It's been said that he would at times host dinner parties for his friends and prepare large meals made of his victims. Eventually, Nikolai's incessant need to kill and to eat overpowered him, and he did something incredibly bold. While hosting one of his dinner parties, Nikolai couldn't resist luring one of his good friends into the kitchen and killing her right there. Eventually, two of the guests wandered into the kitchen to find their companion's head severed and sitting on the stove, while Nikolai loomed over her massacred body soaked in blood. Because of this, Nikolai was committed to a mental institution and continues to remain there today, if only he had better control over his cravings. Pride, sometimes considered the deadliest of all sins, tied in to every other one of them. T.J. Lane is perhaps one of the most prideful and entitled killers to ever see a courtroom. He was always regarded as a quiet, guarded kid in high school, but on February 27, 2012, at 7.30 a.m., his whole demeanor changed when he walked into the Chardon High School cafeteria, withdrew a 22 caliber pistol, and began gunning down anyone he could. Six students were injured as a result of the shooting before TJ fled the building, chased out by teachers. Three of those students tragically died from their wounds. One was paralyzed from the waist down. Just two months before, a Facebook post made by a TG Lane on Facebook was posted poetically referring to people as lesser and peasants and was signed off with, Die, all of you. TJ was arrested shortly after the brutal shooting and pled guilty for his crimes. Perhaps most arrogant and prideful of all was the time of his sentencing. When arriving in the courtroom, he took off his button-up shirt to reveal a white t-shirt with the word KILLER written across it. As the families of those impacted by his actions spoke to him, he smirked and laughed. Worst of all, TJ at one point turned to address those family members and held up his hand, raised his middle finger, made disgustingly crude comments about the deaths of their sons, and cursed them. TJ Lane was sentenced to life in prison, having been too young at the time of the events to be given the death penalty. He managed to escape from prison in 2014, but was quickly recaptured and sent off to a super security prison where he spends 23 hours of each day in a tiny cell. The families of the victims know it's here that he will rot, but he will never regret his decision to kill those he felt inferior that day. Detective stories and murder mysteries all explore our fascination with crime and its repercussions. We are drawn to these stories because they probe the boundaries of human behavior. 
We want to see, but then again, we don't. We've all heard that truth is stranger than fiction, but when it comes to real-life murder, the twisted imagination of a killer can trump any fictional story. The corkscrew, a harmless implement used to open a bottle of wine, commonly found in a kitchen drawer in almost every home. But you don't expect to find one sticking out of a human body. Carlos Castro was a 65-year-old Portuguese reality television star and acclaimed journalist and was loving life. In 2011, his body was found in a New York hotel. Carlos had been badly beaten, strangled, and mutilated with a collection of bizarre weapons. A computer monitor, a wine bottle, and a corkscrew. Investigators soon settled on a prime suspect, Renato Siabra, Carlos's 23-year-old lover. The jury and court attendants were told in horrific detail everything Renato allegedly did. In a frenzied attack, Renato bludgeoned and strangled Carlos to death, afterwards castrating him with a corkscrew, wearing the amputated flesh as a bracelet, and drinking Carlos's blood. Renato's defense lawyers argued that he was not of sound mind and could not be held responsible for his actions. But prosecutors argued that because Renato placed a Do Not Disturb sign on the hotel room door after the act, he showed presence of mind. And for that, the jury found him guilty of murder. Renato Siabra is currently serving a 25-year sentence for his crimes. Carlos Castro's ashes were scattered by his sister in the subway tunnels under Broadway, a place he frequented and loved. The eyes are the windows to the soul. Psychologists argue that we are hardwired from birth to fixate on them, to value someone's gaze, and to avoid it when being submissive. But it's one thing to be captivated by beautiful eyes, and another to collect them. Charles Albright was dubbed the eyeball killer by the press, and it's easy to see why. After carrying out crimes such as forgery and child molestation, from the 1960s onwards, he began collecting the eyes of his victims. An unusually bright child, Albright spent much of his time shooting animals and then preserving them to be stuffed and displayed, but he couldn't afford the glass eyes needed to add a lifelike finishing touch. Perhaps this is where the obsession began, but it wasn't until the early 1990s that his obsession turned to madness. Albright shot his first victim, Mary Lou Pratt, a 33-year-old prostitute living in Dallas in the back of the head, before removing both of her eyes with surgical precision. Three months later, in February 1991, Albright struck again killing another prostitute named Susan Peterson. Her eyes had been removed just like Mary Lou Pratt's had. Curiously, Susan allegedly claimed to know who the eyeball killer was before she was brutally silenced. Albright's final victim, Shirley Williams, was found dead near a school, beaten more savagely than the others as his violence escalated. Albright kept his victim's eyes as tokens, much like he had done with the bodies of animals when he was a child. Thankfully, he was caught before he could harm anyone else. Although, he insists to this day that he is innocent, and the real eyeball killer is still out there.
It seemed like a simple plan. Kidnap someone rich, stow them underground alive, and wait for the ransom to be paid. What could possibly go wrong? Stephen Small, a successful businessman in Kankakee, Illinois, had much to live for. He had money, was a successful entrepreneur, and lived a good life. But success can attract unwanted attention from those wishing to profit from misery. Just after midnight on September 2, 1987, Stephen Small was kidnapped by Danny Edwards and Nancy Risch, who were posing as police officers and told Stephen one of his properties had been broken into. After this, the plan was simple. Contact Stephen Small's wife and demand a $1 million ransom for his return, or they would kill him. The kidnappers placed Stephen into a wooden coffin and gave him food, a jug of water, and a flashlight before burying the coffin in the ground. A pipe led from the coffin to the air above so that Stephen would have enough oxygen to breathe, but the kidnappers didn't realize that the pipe wasn't big enough to provide adequate oxygen. After tracing Edwards and Rish's ransom calls, the police arrested both of them and were eventually led to the makeshift coffin. Inside was Stephen Small's lifeless body. He had died in agony, his lungs slowly starved of oxygen until he suffocated. Rish and Edwards were found guilty of first-degree murder and kidnapping. Both are still behind bars to this very day for their failed plan that had deadly consequences. Since the 1950s, the term nuclear age has conjured fear. Between a nuclear war, faulty submarines poisoning the sea, or accidents like Fukushima and Chernobyl, radioactive waste is widely perceived as a threat. But it only takes the smallest drop of radioactive material to lead to a bitterly painful, incurable end. The poisoning of Alexander Litvienko was brutal. It was a case of shadowed assassins waiting to strike at any moment, and it caused a major diplomatic stir. Once a Russian agent, Alexander was granted asylum in the United Kingdom after allegedly being pursued by the Russian government. After publishing a series of damning books accusing the Russian government of ordering the death of political adversaries, Alexander fell ill with a mysterious sickness after meeting with two former KGB officers. At first, the symptoms resembled food poisoning or a bad gastric flu, but his condition deteriorated quickly. He found it difficult to walk and was finally admitted to the hospital. There, the doctors could find no common reason for the illness until his blood and urine tests revealed he'd been poisoned with radioactive material. But it was too late, and his dose was fatal. Before his death, Alexander pointed the finger directly at the Russian government for his sickness, he died of heart failure on the 22nd of November, 2006, 21 days after he was poisoned. UK investigators found the source of the radiation originated from a nuclear power plant in Russia, although Russia denies all involvement. What we do know is that Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned and paid for expressing his opinions with his life. Retirement should be about happiness, a chapter in life that releases a person from the stresses of work and financial commitments. But for Mary Ann Soir and her brother Horace, retirement proved to be something entirely different, a once happy journey that took a turn into utter misery. 
87-year-old Mary Ann Swar was well-liked in her community of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. She lived in an old townhouse that belonged to her parents before her. She lived quietly and happily with her 81-year-old brother, Horace, an electrician, and was always a friendly face to neighbors. Then, at approximately midnight on Monday, September 10th, everything changed. Four men forced their way into Mary and Horace's home and robbed them of all their valuable possessions, but did far worse. The men bound and gagged Mary and Horace and left them there in the night. They could not see, shout for help, or even move. All they could do was lie in the darkness and wait for help, but no one came. They were left there in their house without food or water for a week. When the newspapers started piling up, the delivery man raised concerns to the authorities. Police entered the house and found Mary, still tied up and blindfolded, dead from thirst. Horace was barely breathing and later passed away in the hospital. Ten years later, after an anonymous tip, three men were eventually arrested, tried, and found guilty of the crime. John Arthur Askew, George Burkhart, and Dale Healy. They are still in prison today. The fourth man, Robert O'Neill, who knew about the robbery but never entered the house, was given a reduced sentence for cooperating with the authorities. This case is made all the more disturbing knowing how different the outcome could have been. Local police received an anonymous call the day after the robbery and were informed that two people were bound and gagged at a house in Lancaster. Unfortunately, the caller gave the wrong house number. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way, because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care, and enjoy your next episode.